Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. How are you today, huh? So much has happened since last week that it seems like months since we were last together here in the salon. Here in the States, uh, we had a one-day experience of the kind of horror that the citizens of Iraq have to endure on a daily basis. And uh, I don't mean in any way to imply that what the families and friends of the people killed at Virginia Tech are going through isn't uh, almost beyond human endurance. It's just hard to imagine that uh, any human being could blow himself or herself up in the middle of a crowded market or commit mass murder on the scale we witnessed this week. But that's the dark side of life these days. And on the light side of life, for me, uh, well, I've just returned from spending a few days visiting with Gene and Myron Stoloroff at their home in the high desert, where we experienced weather that ranged from rain to near-hurricane-force winds. <laughs> and uh, we even had snow one afternoon, and uh, then an afternoon as beautiful as you could wish for. It was really a uh, spectacular time for me, and I'll tell you more about it in a future podcast where I'll play a recording of another conversation with Myron in which, uh, among other things, he tells a delightful story about Alan Watts. But today we're going to travel back to the big tent on the playa at last year's Burning Man Festival, where Dr. Preet Chopra began his 2006 Palenque Norte lecture by telling us about the study being conducted at Harbor UCLA in which he and another psychiatrist are giving psilocybin to end-stage cancer patients. So we'll pick up where last week's podcast left off, just after uh, George Greer and Rico Tolbert described their earlier work with MDMA, and uh, where I began to introduce Preet. But he is going to talk about uh, the study that's going on at Harbor UCLA Medical Center, where they're uh, treating uh, stage 4 cancer patients with anxiety with psilocybin, the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. So... Without further ado, if Soren will let you come, Preet, please help me welcome Dr. Preet Chopra. Well, uh, the study we're uh, currently doing down in Los Angeles is a study investigating the use of psilocybin to treat anxiety. We're also looking at depression and pain in kind of uh, end-stage cancer patients. So I'll just tell you a little bit about the protocol, what we do, and um, I really enjoy doing Q&A, so we can do some of that towards the end. Um, this study is uh, funded by the, the Hefter Research uh, Organization, of which uh, George Greer is uh, you know, a major part of. So we have um, government approval. This is something that uh, Charles Grobe had obtained over many years, um, government approval to use psilocybin uh, to treat 12 participants um, in this study. Um, each participant will receive uh, two treatment sessions, and they serve as their own placebo, meaning that one of the uh, sessions um, they will be given uh, psilocybin at 0.2 milligrams per kilogram, and the other session will, will be niacin, which is considered an active placebo. Um, though it's fairly apparent um, whether someone receives the, the, the placebo or, or not. Um, 
for this study, uh, the participants are admitted into a hospital. Um, this is a this is at an LA County hospital in Torrance. Uh, we're lucky because the research unit on, in this hospital had um, had done a lot of sleep studies in the past, so we have access to a room that's got a double door and is is fairly insulated um, from the rest of the hospital. Because as you know, there's a lot of noise, overhead pages, and things like that in the hospital. So we have a pretty good spot considering we're in a hospital. Also, really largely in part thanks to uh, Mary C. Haggerty, um, who was our, our first research coordinator until she moved out of the area to care for her, uh, her little granddaughter. She has set up this really nice uh, method of decorating this room where we kind of convert it more into kind of like a little kind of chill-out pad with you know, some, some nice, uh, nice colored tapestries and overhanging above the bed. And uh, she was also pivotal in setting up kind of our music system which we use um, you know, during the experience, but also the, uh, the people in the study are free to kind of use this stuff um, the night before um, to get you know, acclimated a little bit to the hospital. Um, before I go into the treatment session, I'll tell you a little bit about the uh, kind of inclusion and exclusion criteria. Um, by the way, we are in need of more participants, um, so if any of you know someone who's unfortunate enough to have end-stage cancer, uh, who might be interested, and particularly if they're in the Los Angeles area, um, we need five more participants. Um, people have to be between the age of um, 18 and 70, can be either men or women. They can't have any major uh, organ involvement with their cancer. Um, the only absolute exclusion is a primary cancer of the brain or someone with cancer with, uh, that has had some metastasis to the brain. Um, that, that was something we had to, we had to accept to um, receive regulatory approval for this. Though I know there, were, there was research done with cancer patients earlier in the 60s where they even treated people with brain cancer, so I'm not sure if that's um, a medical contraindication or not, really. Um, they also can't have severe diabetes or uncontrolled hypertension. They can't have any major cardiac problems. Um, I think that's the major exclusion exclusion criteria. Inclusion of criteria is stage four, um, end-stage cancer, and um, they have to have anxiety. So it's pretty easy to meet the, the inclusion criteria if someone has um, anxiety. Um, we do have a, a website with information. It's called canceranxietystudy.org um, if you know somebody who might be interested in meeting the criteria. So when we receive, um, you know, receive a call either from a family member or a friend or a potential participant, there's kind of a screening process that goes on. Um, we're not going to treat anybody who has major pre-existing uh, mental illness. We're really looking for somebody whose um, anxiety has really kind of uh, really been I guess stirred up by this kind of this, this kind of situation of, of being told that someone has cancer and, and not much time to live. Um, first we'll meet with these people to do some kind of introductory sessions. There's three members of the kind of uh, co-therapy team if you want to call that. That's myself. I'm a co-investigator. Um, you know, my teacher and mentor Charles Grobe is the lead investigator. He's the lead therapist. And we, um, since we're both men, we, uh, we try to have uh, a third therapist who is a woman. Um, so for most of the study up to this point, that's been uh, Mary C. Haggerty, who's quite, a, who's, who's quite a really, really good person to have sitting with someone in an altered level of consciousness. Um, you know, once we've decided that somebody kind of meets that basic criteria and it sounds like somebody who wants to work with us, we start working on intention. You know, why are they coming into this study? How do they want to... Um, 
utilize this kind of chemical analog of you know, one of the plant medicines. Um, and they're required to have an MRI um, prior to the study just to document that they have no um, brain mats. And luckily, everyone who's come in so far that we've entered into the study, we haven't discovered any brain mats, which would kind of, kind of be a bad thing to, to find out right then. Um, after that, once we explain to them that you know, they're taking an experimental compound that has um, very, very strong psychoactive properties that's in the family of psychedelics, um, we kind of talked to them about you know, some of the potential side effects of psilocybin, um, which can be you know, some mild nausea, um, some agitation, some anxiety, some restlessness, some insomnia, things like that. And we also talk about the kind of potential benefits of, of going into this treatment. I mean, the real, real, the real, real profound um, contribution, number one, of participating in, a, in research um, as a human subject to kind of further this cause along the way, but also hopefully that they'll get some benefit out of this, that maybe they can utilize this, this psychedelic uh, treatment experience to kind of maybe get another frame of reference or do a life review or um, even have a mystical experience that will help them place into context uh, whatever their particular set of uh, circumstances are that they want to work on when they come in uh, with their intention. So, um, you know, Charlie and I have a pretty busy schedule during the week, so we generally do these sessions on Saturday since they can last anywhere from six to eight hours. One of the reasons Charlie uh, chose psilocybin versus LSD was because of the length of session, um, just how to do this. And also with uh, many people with end-stage cancer, um, fatigue is an issue, so we don't want to give them too long of a, an experience. So that's what, another reason why I picked psilocybin. So generally on Friday, they'll be admitted up to this, uh, it's called the GCRC research unit. Um, they will be placed on cardiac monitoring because we're looking at, we want to measure an EKG just to document um, if there's any kind of uh, rate or rhythm changes uh, from psilocybin, which so far we haven't seen. And we'll meet with them again, the whole therapy team will introduce them to the nurses on the unit. Um, we're the favorite study of all the nurses on this research unit. I mean, they love us. They really enjoy our patients, us, and what's, go you know, what's going on. Um, you know, generally, they're doing very kind of boring studies, so this is pretty cool for them. So they've, they've really learned a lot about, uh, I think, psychedelic psychotherapy and are very much a part of, of this team and really kind of co-facilitate the participants' whole experience. Um, every time we set up the room, they're like, hey, we've got to hire you guys to decorate all the hospital beds in this hospital. This is really what hospitals should look like, you know, a nice sanctuary kind of feeling. Um, so they're admitted generally around 2 or 3 p.m. We'll go up there and chat, work on attention again, get them cozy, comfortable. You know, if they bring in some of their own music, they can kind of relax, um, listen to headphones, put on eye shade, and hopefully sleep well that night. We'll then meet again Saturday morning, usually at 8, work on intention. Um, Charlie Jenner will call on the spirits, kind of make it kind of ritualistic, though that's not in our treatment protocol. And then about an hour later, the research pharmacist will bring up um, the experimental medication. Um, this will arrive in a little kind of pharmacy bottle, which is kind of interesting, and it says, you know, participant's name, Dr. Charles Grove, and then it'll say, you know, psilocybin X milligrams or niacin, which is kind of a nice souvenir for the participants. So then it, it will take a baseline blood pressure and pulse, and then we'll start the session. We encourage um, the participants to go very deep within. This isn't kind of a, uh, a sightseeing journey or something like that. 
but you know, really according to some of the research that was done before on prohibition, it was found that people who had more internal experiences were more likely to, to get the kind of psychological or some intervention that we're really going for uh, with this. Though feeling good is also um, a really, really nice nice way to get a new perspective from anxiety and depression, by the way. That's not the real aim of this. We have pre-selected music, which is intended to kind of kind of bring them up into the journey, up to a peak, and then help them kind of come down. And that's something we're working on. We um, ask them to lay down, put on the eye shades, and really, if they, if they want to speak to us, we're okay to be there in a supportive role, but we generally encourage them, this is what we've worked on in the weeks and months before it, why don't we, to, for them to really have their, their own experience, we'll kind of facilitate that. And during the come down and after the experience and the kind of days and weeks after, we'll work to kind of integrate this experience along with their intention. And I think that's, at least in this model we're doing, where more of the kind of psychotherapy goes on. So actually for the, the actual um, experience really is kind of, Let's, let's make this experience happen. Now, we don't know which is going to be the placebo or, uh, or the active, uh, active medication, as I said. Um, we do check in once per hour to check a blood pressure and pulse. I don't know if I just said that. Um, just so we can document if there's any kind of uh, heart rate changes. Now, we generally have noticed that we haven't crunched the data yet since we haven't finished this study, that there's a, you know, there's a slight blood pressure and pulse bump um, right at the come on. That'll generally be as early as one hour, maybe two hours uh, in, into the experience, but nothing um, that's required any kind of intervention on our part. It's just been a slight rise um, in that. And, you know, after the experience, we've uh, we've asked uh, people who have family members to come in and meet them. You know, no one drives themselves home. You know, we do a little jam session to see how they're going, um, and then they're kind of sent off their way. We will meet with them periodically, though that's not really structured. Um, However, we have a set of kind of questionnaires looking at depression, pain, anxiety, some kind of scale of mysticism, where we kind of do follow-up work to try to get some, try to obtain some data which we can use to kind of document what these experiences um, are like. So I think that covers the basics of, of what this study is about. Um, like I said, we we're looking for some more participants. We actually have have treated six. Uh, people so far. It's been pretty, pretty uh, powerful work. Some of the most gratifying, probably the most gratifying work I've done in my kind of career as, as a physician, absolutely. Um, since, we're, since our dose is based on ki uh, milligrams per kilogram, and some people with end-stage cancer are quite cachectic or kind of wasted away, um, some people are not probably having, you know, doses that we would probably use if this was, you know, something we could we could administer just as psychiatry at large. So um, just some observations. Again, we haven't looked at any of the data. Um, uh, two of our kind of heavier, relatively heavier participants had higher doses, uh, more in the range of you know, 19, 20 milligrams, which is kind of a moderate dose. And they probably had the most profound kind of just psychedelic experience. And the one participant um, who had kind of a less than a really powerful experience though was still helpful, um, only received a dose of about um, 12 or 12 milligrams because she was quite wasted away, unfortunately. Um, so that that's kind of another 
interesting, some interesting information we've already obtained. We hope to apply uh, to the FDA and DEA maybe to, to go for a higher dose um, and also to provide a booster session if possible because every single um, participant has, has wished they'd be able to do another session or have a session um, at a higher dose. Um, another thing that's interesting, many, many of the participants, again, there's only been six, but I'd say about five out of the six, felt that even the placebo session, kind of working with us, sitting with them together, you know, for six to eight hours, um, was quite helpful in their own um, growth process at this kind of uh, boundary situation where they're, they're heading. So, again, often if we, you know, kind of realize it's the placebo session, people try to go with it, nothing's going on, we will kind of do some... Um, some work on their intention, get to know them even more and stuff like that. So it's a pretty intense situation where you have, you know, kind of three uh, co-therapists, you know, all working with the intention to kind of catalyze some healing for an individual. So it's a really, really powerful um, transformational kind of experience. I think even even with the placebo session, I can't remember if it was either George or Rico who said, you know, it's the drug is is just the drug. It's like a key. It's a door. It's, you know, it's what you do with it, what your intention is. Set setting using ritual. I think these are important ingredients that make um, this study really kind of a worthwhile thing to do. We're not just uh, here's psilocybin and checking in on them the next day. So um, yeah, so it's really nice to be here. I like I said, I enjoy answering questions, so I you know so I can speak to what people are interested in. So if it's okay, I'll take some questions. Yeah. Uh, so I think it might be anecdotal. What are your thoughts? Okay, so the question is, you know, what is this exclusion criteria of, you know, kind of major mental illness or specifically a psychotic disorder, you know, and basically why is that fair? Well, that's a big kind of like question, you know, I think at large. Speaking about our study, we're really looking to, to treat, you know, kind of, quote, psychologically healthy people um, who are having a kind of existential crisis um, dealing with... Um, you know, the, the imminent death that a stage four cancer diagnosis labels them with. So that's what we're specifically doing in this study. I have met some psychedelic elders who used, um, I think, LSD with uh, autistic children, which, which is a pretty severe mental disorder, and as well, and has also used um, LSD with schizophrenic patients in Southern California. Um, there's a psychologist by the name of Gary Fisher who did some of that work, and his papers are available. Um, uh, one or two things he's written is even available on the MAP site. He has an ex excellent article, I mean, for anyone who's interested in kind of psychedelic therapy, or either as a participant or you know, future doctors and therapists out there, he has an excellent article on that webpage talking about counter-transference and psychedelics, um, which is a really, really beautiful read. He doesn't really do any of this work anymore. He's an artist now. so. Um, but I think that's a really important kind of question that maybe in time as um, psychedelic treatment becomes more available. Um, right now it's only done at a very, very few kind of um, really highly regulated kind of research spots right now. As it would become available as a mainstream treatment, then I think it would be investigated into the use for a variety of other psychological disorders. That's just not what the intention of our study is. It's very, it's very basic. I mean, another, I guess, intention of the study is to kind of replicate some of the work that was done um, earlier, particularly by Stan Groff and his kind of colleagues um, in kind of like the Washington, D.C., Johns Hopkins area, using, um, they were using LSD with cancer patients and had really, really good results. 
but unfortunately, just like any of the kind of medical research of that area, it doesn't it doesn't um, kind of satisfy these kind of stringent uh, research and methodology um, standards that are required now. So that's another. So we're just trying to do something that you know we've read. There's these published reports. It works really well. Let's try to like let's bring that into the the, the mainstream modern scientific uh, literature, which is the step to to um, transforming a treatment from an experimental model into um, an actual treatment. But again, this is considered a stage one trial. This is basically like, is this safe in humans? That's how kind of early this is, yeah. All right, so her, 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 her statement basically is, hey, niacin gives you this rush, that's so pretty obvious. Um, what it is right away. Yeah, you know, that, that's, that's a very good point. Not everybody gets the niacin flush. Um, some people do. Um, so I don't, perhaps, um, in, the, in the next study, if we can do it, we may uh, kind of steal something from that psilocybin Hopkins study that people may have heard about. They actually use Ritalin as, as their placebo, which provides, you know, a blood pressure and a pulse bump and kind of gets people talking and jittery and a little bit more of an activation. So particularly in a psychedelic, naive person, uh, I don't think they would be able to tell the difference, perhaps. And it's interesting, um, I'm referring to a study by Roland Griffiths out of Johns Hopkins that was published in Psychopharmacology in July. They treated um, healthy volunteers who had some sort of spiritual inclination, no mental illness, really no psychological problem with 30 milligrams of psilocybin. And the beautiful thing about that study, they actually interviewed sitters and participants and tried to see, hey, how likely were these people to predict what they were on or not? And they had a very, very low um, prediction of what they were on. Many sitters confused, you know, psilocybin for Ritalin, vice versa, and same with the participants. So, but very good observation, yes. Yeah, please. Okay, so the question is, number one, have any other participants passed? And is there a difference uh, regarding maybe a person's personal age or maturity and how they pass and what happens? So, so far, none of our participants have passed away, um, which is really kind of cool. Um, one person we worked with is, is doing very, very poorly right now and is really, really struggling. She had a, um, she had a very late diagnosis of breast cancer. It was metastatic to her bones and spine, was diagnosed after she found, had fallen and had a hip fracture, and they picked it up in a hospital. Um, so she is struggling with every kind of living moment with a lot of pain, anxiety, um, guilt at not maybe uh, noticing what was going on and things like that. But uh, in terms of the age range, we, we haven't treated um, people with, in such the range that is our criterion. Um, I would say the youngest participant was maybe about mid-40s to mid-60s has been the range we've treated. And again, it's not 17 to 80. The, the, uh, the, uh, the age range is 18 to 70. Yeah, but it's okay. I mean, that's an arbitrary no number. You know, Charlie was negotiating with, for many years with the DEA and the FDA to do this study. So what actually we're doing is, is the result of leeway from kind of both sides. I mean, the ideal thing to do would be to do a study um, using psychedelics um, in, in, uh, in facilitating um, accepting a diagnosis of cancer in any age and anybody to really kind of work through that really terrible process in my mind, but that's not what we're doing. 
Yes, you know, several of our patients have had experience um, with psychedelics. Some have had no experience. Um, some uh, participants had experiences maybe many years ago when they were younger, and there was um, one participant who had maybe something not too distant. But um, yeah, another exclusion criteria is kind of severe addictive disorders too, by the way, I should say. But you know, in my treatment as a psychiatrist, I have never treated a, a psychedelic addiction. I've treated <laughs> a lot of you know addicts who are addicted to a lot of stuff and also use psychedelics, but um, I have not. I have not. That has never come into my emergency room or office. Question? Yeah. Have you designed, assuming that the phase one study proves that it's not toxic and you can move to phase two, have you designed the protocol for phase two yet? Well, I think the idea is, is to loosen up the, um, the, the uh, exclusion criteria, or the ex inclusion criteria, maybe hopefully drop it to any diagnosis of cancer, to drop some of the organ system contraindications. I think going after dropping the kind of brain issues so we have no good evidence to kind of argue with that one. So the idea would be to kind of expand that. I know um, Charlie's been talking to a group in NYU who want to duplicate the study. So if they are going to do that, it's going to, it would actually be a multi-site study, which is really, really, you know, cool. You know, one of the limitations of this kind of work really is um, just, you know, professional medical, psychological establishments' interest in the use of psychedelics. I mean... In my experience working here, I don't feel like there is a, a concentrated effort to prevent this. I mean, it's just a question of, you know, there's nobody interested in doing in, doing this kind of work. And that's why it was so easy to me, for me to participate when I met uh, Charlie, gave us a lecture about psychedelics, and I said, hey, I want to help out. And he's like, wow, that'd be great. You're one of the few doctors I've ever met who's interested in this. So um, getting word out there is one thing. The other thing, obviously, is funding because most medical research today is sponsored by Big Farm. These are huge, you know, multinational corporate giants. You don't have a lot of interest in this right now, though they do kind of follow what's, what's going on. Um, I mean, we're talking transformational treatments here, not, you know, take this pill every day and see me once a month. So. Oh, so I think the, the question kind of making it a little bit more basic... <laughs> is um, in my experience working with these psychedelics, can I kind of um, imagine how a psychedelic process could um, facilitate a, a physical cure of a cancer? Uh, I can definitely imagine that. Uh, unfortunately, the, uh, the, uh, the people we are treating are so riddled with this cancer, I think we're beyond the, the, the point of preventive kind of care. I would imagine maybe at an earlier stage, you know, which is which would you know in some ways might be earlier than uh, what we can detect in the medical profession. Sure, but again, I don't know. I I don't have the ability to discuss that right now. It just would be a fantasy. So. Okay, so this question is: Hey, I, I used the word transformational up there. Can I kind of talk about the phenomenology of that? What is that? Um, I, I, that is something I am really kind of exploring. The reason I became a psychiatrist and do psychedelic research is to try to understand what is, what, what is transformation. Um, not everyone in our study has had a transformational experience. Some people had um, kind of more of a big personal review, one over their life history, family relationships, relationships with others, and self. So it was really more of kind of, I think in the older literature they used the word um, psycholytic. 
okay? Because um, again, like I shared with you guys earlier, the dose we're using isn't as high as I believe could be safely administered. Charlie had originally, I believe, applied for 0.4 milligrams per kilogram. And after going back and forth, it came to 0.2, so. But um, the, uh, there is like this move you know, among science right now to understand the mystical experience, which I think is tied into the transformational experience. And people are looking at all kinds of measures to try to understand that since we're humans and we try to figure this out. But I think it's something uh, to be experienced. You know? and, well, so the question is, can I talk about the politics of the study? You know, I'm relatively a new kid on the block here. You know, I came to Burning Man in 2000. I was a medical student. You know, now I'm a psychiatrist doing this kind of work. So from my own personal perspective and my own kind of life, I think it's incredible. You know, I can't believe that I'm here talking to you guys about this right now. But when I hear kind of elders in the community, it's like there's been this long, hard battle, hurdles, and things like that. So I don't feel I have the perspective right now to make um, a statement about that, but I'm very, very optimistic, you know, about it. I mean, after I spoke yesterday on this really cool panel with some other people in this work, you know, people are talking to me about, hey, we may need a, a, an MD to help us with our treatment up here right now. We're expanding. Stuff like that is really cool. And, you know, um, I mean, I think this thing could explode, you know, nuclear or not, but... Uh, you know, my, my real personal goal of going into psychiatry is to really try to help people in their own transformation and growth. So it's not super vital to me to have psychedelics as one of my treatments because I don't believe they are right for everybody, actually. I mean, however, it's an incredible technology that I think has been used for millennium um, by humans. I mean, maybe when we were transforming from animal to human, um, so I say, you know, I think it's kind of ridiculous um, to be a scientist and a doctor and not investigate and try to understand how we can use these tools um, in a Western culture safely. So, yeah, so this question is, hey, do I know about any studies in Peru about ayahuasca? I don't know about any studies in Peru, but, you know, my, my teacher, Charlie, um, spent some time, I believe, in Brazil. Is that where the UDV is? Um, so I don't know. I don't know this really personally, really well. But they uh, did some work um, just studying the kind of phenomena of um, members of this kind of syncretic religion who use ayahuasca ceremonially um, for rites of passage and for their kind of religious sacraments. And they found, you know, from a variety of psychological battery, that the actual, um, you know, juveniles and adults who were in this church had much lower rates of criminality and substance abuse and antisocial behavior and kind of matched controls. Um, I think this is Brazil. And that was kind of instrumental in um, the kind of decriminalization or the lack of the criminalization of ayahuasca, if you're a member of um, one of these um, churches that uses it. Um, it's kind of analogous to, you know, maybe peyote with Native Americans. So the question is, hey, how have the anxieties in the kind of six participants been relieved? Um, you know, everyone, it's, it's quite different. Um, I could talk about, I can speak about maybe one person who I know pretty well, who I've also been seeing weekly since then. She probably finished the actual protocol, I'm not quite sure, some, for some time. But one of her, when she came into the study, her big kind of um, metaphor for herself was that I have a cage around my heart. And this is something that kept her from connecting to herself and others. She had a lot, a lot of kind of family trauma that was 
um, passed down to her from her mother. Her mother was a uh, concentration camp survivor, had lost all her relatives. Um, um, in, you know, they were in the Ukraine, but had all been kind of shipped off to the camps. And though um, this participant had never had that experience, she was really kind of raised with this worldview that everyone's out to get you, it's quite dangerous. So she had a lot of trouble connecting with others. Now that has vastly improved um, since, since the, uh, the psychedelic experience where really she expressed a lot of love and grief for her parents versus before I know she had been through traditional psychotherapies. It had been a lot about, about talking about how bad her mom and dad were and things like that, kind of standard loops we all can get stuck into. I think we all go through that. And really in the last year, just working with her, really just in a traditional kind of psychotherapy, meeting with her weekly, it's just been amazing watching her open up to me and then relating incidents where she is connecting with coworkers, old friends, you know, strained family relationships. So for her it was a real kind of inner person it was an inner transformation, but also an interpersonal transformation. And before she just wanted to spend a lot of time alone and felt people were out to get her and was really stuck in this world of kind of projecting, you know, just fear, which I think is what Yeah. Instead of hope. <laughs> Yeah, I'd have to say probably the one uh, participant, again, I haven't looked at the scales, they have this mystical scale. Um, I think only one of the participants really got up, up there or very close to it, because again, I don't think our dose was high enough. The question was, you know, what was the kind of mystical experience? I mean, that's, you know, I was kind of referring to this before, there are consciousness researchers out there trying to document and understand the mystical experience. It's not something I, I mean, I, I'm not really super up on that. I don't have a great vocabulary to kind of discuss that, unfortunately. Okay. So the question is, yeah, did any of the participants have a feeling of being in contact with an enemy? I'm sorry, an entity or, yeah, or an enemy or a higher power? You know, no, no one phrased it in that words, but the one person I was talking about really felt quite a kind of connection um, with her dad and mother particularly, a lot of empathy for what they were going through and an understanding of why their relationship was the way with each other and with the kids. But no, there wasn't anything like that so far. But I know that, I believe, phenomena like that was described in the study at Hopkins, um, which was at a higher dose. So, so the question is, hey, you know, what about the dark side? and? He mentioned, uh, I guess, going to dark places and also stomach problems. And the second part was, hey, what about putting him in the group? We don't have any approval to do group treatment. This is an individual treatment we're investigating right now. Um, in terms of the dark side, I mean, I think that's like maybe a kind of limited way of a kind of understanding the psychedelic space. Um, people have had, I wouldn't call it joyful experiences, but they've been very, very needed places to go. Um, so... Uh, and, you know, we're there providing a lot of support. There's three of us. So, for example, the, uh, the participant who I was talking about had a major, major catharsis. And our research coordinator, Mary C., went there and hugged her and held her when she cried, maybe for 45, 50 minutes. And this is a woman who also said, hey, I never cry. I don't know how to cry. I don't know how to get to my emotions. I can't let it out. I don't know who I am. I don't feel love. But uh, she felt it there, and we felt it there, too. So. Another thing I guess I could say, I'm just kind of freelancing on this right now. In some essence, it is a group experience, and there's four of us there. Yeah. 
though only one person has an altered level of consciousness that is induced by a, a, a psychoactive substance. Oh, so um, did everyone hear that question? He's basically asking, how do I see myself in this this game of life right now, administering a kind of a, a medicine that has been traditionally a shamanic, comes from a shamanic tradi- a tradition, in a kind of the Western medical model right now? Um, that's a great question. That's something I'm. I, um, that's something that came together for me by participating in this study. Um, I think ultimately, probably the true wisdom about these plants comes from shamanic tradition. Um, however, in today's Western society, people come will often come to a psychiatrist um, to address uh, the issues that in a in a different tribal kind of society they would they would seek out the shaman. I don't know what else I can say. I, you know, I'd like to plug our camp right now. We're at a 8.30 in Eager. It's the Daisy Diner. So um, I'm happy to discuss things like that over there over a cup of coffee. That's not something I can give a, a quick response to a microphone to. But that's a very, very important uh, question that you asked me that I'm exploring. I appreciate that. Yeah, so the question is, hey, I think it's kind of odd that you're tying dosage to body weight with psychedelics. So I think that's part of the kind of medical kind of tradition of looking at an experimental medicine. Some medications are effective in terms of milligrams per kilogram. Some medications just require a certain effective dose. Now, I probably suspect that psilocybin just requires a certain effective dose, and it does not need to be dosed milligrams per kilogram. But I think that's part of just being a phase one study, and that's kind of, I think, um, what Charlie went for, looking as a kind of a safety study. But I do agree with you. I, I, I don't know of any information that I've ever read, or no one's ever spoken to me saying, hey, we have to give this, you know, by body weight. Yeah. So the question is, we have a very limited number of sessions um, with the participant. Um, well... I guess we're doing a placebo-controlled study of actually when, when we administer the uh, the treatment medicine. So um, since it would be kind of un- really cruel and unfair to do one group of treatment participants who are really going way out of their way, I mean, people agree to go off their pain medications, they agree to go off their antidepressants and muscle relaxers if they're on them for this. They're spending a night in a hospital and when they're often quite medically frail. It wouldn't be fair or ethical to do a group like that. So because of that, every single participant serves as their own placebo control, meaning that everyone comes in for a treatment session and a placebo session. And again, I feel it would be beneficial to look at, beneficial for the participants to do more sessions than just one active session, and better just to understand how we can integrate this kind of this kind of treatment into our Western culture right now. But I think part of that has to do with you know regulations, and this is kind of like this huge baby step. I think this study, along with some other studies um, that are going on. Um, that's actually you know when you do a research study, you apply and you have to kind of say what you're doing and things like that. I do believe Charlie has the intention to say, hey, can we do booster sessions? Which wouldn't be a placebo. We'd say, like, hey, can now that we know that it's safe, um, it's safe with these participants, there's no major um, adverse effect that's happened, 
um, why don't we take the opportunity to give some more benefit um, to the people who say it helped them? Yeah. Okay, last question. So the question is, hey, are we like, what are we doing in the room during this session? Are we focusing our energy and intention um, on on this uh, this this experience, or are we sitting there reading a book? So um, we uh, we'll get grounded at first, do a little kind of calm the spirits. I tend to kind of do my own personal meditation, get very grounded. I uh, I visualize filling up my heart with enough love, so then it'll explode and can cover myself and I can share that with the other person. Though I imagine that's just some kind of fantasy. This really, this work has been transformational for me as well. But again, I mean, we have an incredible, incredible team. First, Charlie, you know, who's a really, who's my teacher and mentor and just an incredible, incredible doctor. And Mary C., who's Lorenzo's wife, who's just a beautiful, incredible person. And then I was brought on board. And these guys were my teachers. And I agree with Preet that uh, Charlie and Mary C. are two of the most incredible teachers around. And I suspect that the participants in the study will agree that the entire team of people, including the hospital staff, are some of the best health care providers that uh, we have in this state. And let's not forget the participants in this important research study. As Preet just said, these brave souls have volunteered a large chunk of their very precious time to further our scientific understanding of these powerful medicines. It isn't a simple or easy thing for them to take part in this study, and we all owe them a huge debt of gratitude, I believe. By the way, uh, when Preet was talking about how Mary C. decorated the hospital room, I remembered that I have a couple of pictures of that room, and so I'll post them along with the program notes for this podcast, which uh, you can find most directly by typing psychedelicsalon.org into your browser. Or you can also get there from buttons on our main matrixmasters.com and matrixmasters.com slash podcast pages. The pictures don't really do the uh, scene justice uh, because it was impossible to stand back far enough to get a good photo. And uh, at the time the pictures were taken, the flowers and other decorations uh, they used for the sessions weren't yet in place. But uh, at least you can get an idea of what lengths the team goes to to make the experience as non-hospital-like as possible. I had planned on doing a short phone interview with Preet this morning to get an update on their progress since last summer, but I ran into a slight technological glitch and wasn't able to record our conversation. Preet did tell me, however, that this weekend they will be working with the 10th participant in the study and that the next-to-last participant is now in the evaluation stage. What this means is that by summer they hope to turn over the results to a statistician in preparation for the final report of the study, which in turn they hope will lead to further approvals by the FDA to expand this important research. And as Preet explained, a phase one study is primarily intended to prove to the government that even very medically vulnerable patients will not be harmed by ingesting a normal dose of psilocybin. And as you would expect, so far they've had no adverse events take place with any of the participants. Of course, the many shaman who come from the tradition of using these medicines for thousands of years could have also told us that. 
But uh, we Westerners only seem to learn things the hard way. At least that's the case with me. Moving on, uh, here's a, an interesting email I received the other day from Jay from the Motor City, which uh, I believe is Detroit for any of our listeners who aren't up on American slang. Anyway, Jay writes, among other things, that uh, back in 1997, he and two friends did a large dose of LSD, and uh, here's what took place. He said, During peak time, my two friends, a man and a woman, were getting a bit paranoid and requested to go sit in the car to listen to music. This was way less than ideal to me, but I agreed, and uh, on our hike back, I noticed they weren't next to me, and looked and found them on their hands and knees combing the tall grass. I asked what they were doing and learned that my friend's girl lost her ring somewhere along the way. It was dark and there was a full moon right above to give some light, but not enough. I just stood there looking at them with a negative outlook on my personal experience and how they were really bumming me out. (laughs) We've all been there, Jay. All of a sudden, I remember getting messages as if I were a radio tuner that I was selfish and this is not a part of me that I want to keep around. I sort of came back to the scenario feeling a deep sense of empathy for my friends who obviously cared about this cheap, though sentimental, ring. And this is where something amazing happens. I go back into this trance radio tuner mode and uh, begin to walk in a straight line until I stop. I put my hand down to the ground with fingers extended and the ring goes right on my finger, right on the ring finger of my left hand. I will never forget this experience. As Terence said in his last days, it's all about love. I came to the same realization that day. I've not taken LSD since then, but maybe someday. Well, Jay, that's the uh, kind of story I just love to hear. And uh, as for that radio tuner mode you were in, I've experienced similar things myself. And uh, for years, I thought that I'd made up that radio receiver concept on my own. And then I heard Terrence McKenna mention the same thing and say that Aldous Huxley also uh, played around with that theory. So uh, if there are any other psychonauts out there who have had a radio receiver experience, I'd sure like to know about it. Who knows? Maybe one day we'll even see a formal study along those lines. Another interesting email came from James, who said, among quite a few other things, he said, uh, for the interview with Siebert, I mostly just wish to express my own experiences with the sage. Salvia is the most threatening thing I have experienced, though this is likely due to my using it in an extracted, smoked form and not in the traditional manner. I've met many people who are quite the losers and see SD as something to get a kick out of while drunk, however, believe it or not. I can't really understand such people, but they exist and uh, threaten the ability of more responsible individuals like myself to use such a valuable teacher. He goes on to say, For the interviews with Myron Stoloroff, I wanted to chime in with my own experience of the Parade of Humanity, or whatever it was called. I've had similar experiences to Myron's concerning seeing a universal quality in images of Christ. It has also occurred looking at people I love, or myself in a mirror. I found it interesting to connect this experience with the idea of seeing those you love during near-death experiences. 
If death really is a final DMT trip and the borders of space and time are broken, then heaven truly does contain all of those loved ones you lost. They're not quite in the way the popular mind considers it. And James also had some uh, comments about the person who wrote and asked about which substances uh, lend themselves to a good experience for someone's first time using a psychedelic. And here's what he had to say. However, I was surprised you did not mention mushrooms or perhaps some research chemicals. But mushrooms seem to be a good option as they can be found easily enough and tend to give a good first experience. Or at least they did for me. Uh, low dose produced some quite profound thoughts I still carry with me. And uh, research chemicals are at least legal and would appeal to a first timer concerned about exact dosages and times. I realize there are risks with those as well, but uh, sometimes it seems more appealing than risking a pill full of meth and caffeine posing as ecstasy. Anyway, I hope all's well with you and my thoughts are appreciated. Thanks for the program once again. Now I must return to writing my final papers. Namaste, James. Uh, thanks for your thoughts on that, James, and I think your suggestions are also worth considering. In fact, I received a number of other suggestions for someone who is considering using psychedelics for the first time, and the range of suggestions is all over the place, which means, I guess, that uh, options for somebody's uh, first psychedelic experience are as wide and varied as someone's options for their first sexual experience. And while it's uh, kind of a gray area for me to be encouraging the use of any illegal psychoactive plants and chemicals, I think it's uh, still safe for me to repeat Terence McKenna's famous thought about the subject when he said that he believed it was as big a tragedy for a human to go to his or her grave without having had a psychedelic experience as it would be for that person to go to their grave without ever having had an orgasm. Now that should uh, certainly give you something to think about. Something I think about every day is how absolutely incredible it is that uh, just out of the blue, some of you have made donations to help offset the expenses of uh, producing the Psychedelic Salon each week. Just in the past week, we've received donations from Greta and from Samuel, both of whom live outside the U.S., and uh, from William here in the States. I haven't had a chance to thank you personally by email yet, but I plan on doing so as soon as this podcast is online. So, uh, for now, thank you all so very much. It's uh, really kind of you to help out in this way. And uh, thanks to all of our donors so far this year. Not only have we covered our anticipated 2007 hosting and bandwidth, on top of that, I've now started building a little equipment fund so that I can eventually get a new iMac computer. From all of the recommendations I've been getting, uh, that's the best platform I can find right now for producing these podcasts, at least if I want to add some new features that are difficult to implement without GarageBand. And what that will also do is allow me to turn my old laptop into a BitTorrent machine and put all of these podcasts into torrent format also, which uh, should be a big help to anyone who only has a dial-up connection to the net. I guess that was just a long-winded way of saying, uh, hey, thank you very much to everybody who's made a donation to the Psychedelic Salon. And even if that donation is simply in the form of uh, telling a friend about these podcasts or helping somebody figure out how to subscribe to the salon through iTunes or one of the other aggregators, all of that helps us. Uh, it all helps us expand this worldwide community of people who are interested in the evolution of consciousness. 
And of course, uh, we also like to have fun and tell good stories too. And uh, speaking of good storytellers, uh, the other principal investigator on the psilocybin study that Preet just talked about is Dr. Charles Grobe, or uh, Charlie as he prefers to be called. And in Podcast 39, uh, the Mind States 2005 Soundbite Program, you can hear part of Charlie's presentation about this same study, along with some additional soundbites from Dr. Julie Holland, Ann and Sasha Shulgin, and Alex Gray. And that program also includes a talk that I gave at Kathleen's Salon in uh, Venice Beach the same year. If his uh, schedule permits, Charlie is going to stop by here sometime in the next couple of weeks and uh, answer some of your questions about ayahuasca. As you know, uh, Charlie, along with Jace Calloway and Dennis McKenna, conducted what remains the most extensive in-depth study uh, so far conducted of the psychological effects of ayahuasca on humans. And uh, I plan on podcasting that interview on my first program after he stops by. And speaking of interesting characters, uh, I did get in another interview with Matt Palomary just before I left to go visit the Stoloroffs. And in that interview, all we talked about was ayahuasca. So unless some gremlins ate that recording, next week you'll be able to join Mateo and me for that conversation. Before I go, I should mention that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are protected under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 2.5 license. If you have any questions about that, you can click on the link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which may be found at matrixmasters.com slash podcast. And if you have any questions about that, just send them to me in an email. The address is lorenzo at matrixmasters.com. Thanks again to Shatul Hayuk for the use of your music here in the salon and to Dr. Preet Chopra for giving a Planque Norte lecture at Burning Man this year and sharing uh, some of the information about the study he's working on. And thanks again to you for being here. I really appreciate you being with us in the salon each week. Now, right after I sign off, I'm going to leave you with a little musical treat from our fellow saloners, Chiba and his brother, Aja West, and the rest of the group known as the Chiba Cabra. I've been uh, listening to their music the past couple of mornings on my walks, and I've, I've really been enjoying it. So, with their permission, I'm going to play a cut from their latest CD, which is titled Exile in the Woods, and uh, this track's called Chatter. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I have. And until next time, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.